As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show and our first weekend review of the 22-23 season. Liverpool struggled out of the gate at Fulham and it was hard to see why, but then Jurgen Klopp explained the grass was too dry. Manchester United were rocked <laughs> by Brighton when a tired squad of players Eric Ten Hag has put together so far failed to enlighten. Man City took three points in the East London region with a very impressive display by a giant Norwegian. And elsewhere, Messi scored an overhead kick. Bayern Munich were very sick. And Giorgio Collini acted like a completely professional defender for the most part of his game. <laughs> My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who's absolutely loving the Man United transfer rumours, Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Uh- Oh, they're wonderful. It's exactly what I expected to wake up to this morning. Squad and free fall. Doesn't seem like there's much chemistry or consistency. Let's add two players who are known to be problematic and difficult to deal with to a locker room that's already difficult and problematic to deal with. What could possibly go wrong? Shambles. Shambles all around. Mm, more on that kind of tone shortly, I imagine, Tote. <laughs> um, just just to, for the listener, you have a slightly different audio quality today because I understand you are trapped in a small room in your house. Oh, this is true. This is true, yes. We have uh, like multiple people coming by to do multiple things at the house. So uh, I am recording from home, which means I'm recording from my closet. This is actually you just hiding from the demon owls, isn't it? That's yes. just what they've reduced you to. There is that, yes. <laughs> Joining us, a man you just heard, he's always on time, much like his struggling, uh, his, uh, his Sterling album season ticket, uh, which arrived <laughs> a couple of minutes before he left for the game on Saturday. Is that right, Grandmother? Yes. I mean, I'm not sure whether to say punctuality isn't Sterling Albion's strong suit, or or it is. Maybe this that was it was designed to arrive just as I was leaving, so that it was to hand nice and easy. Mm. Yes, cutting things a little bit fine. Sterling Albion, the, the first home game of the season, kicked off at three, and it appeared through the letterbox just after 12 midday, and I live just over an hour away from the stadium. So that was uh, a little bit close for comfort. And how did the game do, go, Graham? Terrible. We were awful. 
Two 0 right. down after ten minutes. Actually, we finished. We we fought back and drew two two against Elgin City. But it's it's not been a not been a good start to the season. I I, uh, I miss optimism. It was it was fleeting optimism that feeling I had for about two weeks when we we did okay in the League Cup. But it's completely gone now, and I am settled in for a season of deep deep malaise and dread. Hey, wow. that makes two of us. Yeah, I mean, that was me last season. I'm hoping for a bit less of that with uh, women having been relegated last year. But we shall see. But it sounds like a fairly miserable weekend for the majority of the crew. Uh, no Joe Lowry here today, this weekend a review, by the way. He is very, very busy retooling his fantasy league team. Um, <laughs> according to the table, it sits at joint 281st. That's about 280 places lower than I expect from Joe. Uh, in the TSS Fantasy Conference League. Taylor, did you know his team is called I Am Taylor? Rockwell. <laughs> I no, didn't I know did that. Not. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I love that's Joe. Yeah, so, so um, Joe, is, Joe is busy, maybe even coming up with a different team name, but that did tickle me uh, very well. Uh, congratulations to Chelsea's Chelsea Sounders, who is the top of the league uh, so far after week one, uh, who captained Salah, of course, to get those sweet, sweet points. He had Haaland and Kulishevsky in there as well. Uh, I'm 243rd in the TSS Conference League because, Graham, uh, I forgot to set my lineup. I picked my team and then I didn't actually set a formation. Oh, no. Aren't I clever? Rookie error. Rookie error. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So hopefully I'll... Uh, that forget. Still doing better than me, though, I think. Oh, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Do you know how, how you did or... Badly. I was so pleased with my team. I think I was happier with my team before game week one than I have ever been ahead of a season and totally struck out. Gabriel Jesus, no goal. Harry Kane, no goal. Raheem Sterling, no goals. Anthony Martial, injured, didn't play. So it was not a good start for me. Normally, I would not love that we're beginning with a prolonged amount of fantasy uh, soccer talk, but if it means we don't have to talk about Manchester United yet, I'm fine with it. Okay, so let's talk about Man United then. No, just kidding, Taylor. Um, I see what we, I've done. We are not a fantasy uh, fantasy podcast. You're quite right, Tay-Tay. But if you do want to join our brand new shiny toy, the, the TSS Conference League, it is R1MSGA. We'll put a code in the show notes as well if you want to join us. A little later on, you'll get a good 37 rounds out of us and maybe a cup competition in there too. Fun and games. Speaking of fun and games, Taylor, let's go there. Let's go to Old Trafford, shall we, for Sunday's game. Manchester United won. Brighton, two. Pascal Gross getting a brace in the first half. Some stuff happening in the second half with a glorious, some kind of own goal for a consolation for Man United. 32% <laughs> of Pascal Gross's Premier League goals, by the way, have been against Manchester United. Six of 19. Uh, I think that was Squawker who came out with that one. I think, Taylor, I was... I, I watched, I'll tell you, I watched this game in a house full of Man United fans. I think there was eight of them all wearing their shirts and the optimism the half an hour before kickoff was like oh it's gonna be a great season i can't wait for this one things are gonna change under Ten Hag. and then at half time it was like oh should, should we watch the second half it was i think i was really surprised taylor at how yeah. little progress this team seems to have made under eric ten Hag because it just looked kind of the same it looked you know very poor out of possession pretty shapeless mcfred in the middle still darla and shaw in the back um, you know low intensity stuff none of the stuff i expected from ten hag was on display here taylor yeah I, I, honestly i think graham will have some pretty good insight into that one because he's been watching them honestly more than i have in preseason. but i will say that when a, a buddy of mine who's also a manchester united fan asked me what lineup i wanted to see 
I had a really hard time filling it out because I think I went for like Mal- uh, Malasia at left back. I didn't want to see Shaw. My central midfielders were a cardboard cutout of Frankie de Jong and any other midfielder who can pass the <laughs> ball. Uh, the, the, like you do start to see the uh, like the vulnerabilities really quickly. So I kind of came into this game thinking it's a Brighton team that historically have been very difficult, are very good at exposing weaknesses. And I think under Graham Potter are especially good at problem solving in the moment. And I watched this game twice because I wanted to see if it was just as bad as I thought it was. And it's it's better in spots than I thought. It's still pretty underwhelming overall. But United were doing different things with Christian Eriksen as the false nine uh, moving all over the place. They were trying to overwhelm in midfield. They were trying to get sort of overlapping runners uh, to create space and stretch Brighton. And then they would have uh, quick passing combinations through the middle, theoretically. And I think in the opening 10 minutes or so, they did have more, uh, I think, like passing ability. They did seem to have a few good combinations. They played out of, of pressure uh, a couple times in a way that I don't think they would have last season. And then Brighton made a few little adjustments, moved some players around, and really took the game over, took control, and got their goals. And I think Manchester United from there on were, were pretty shell-shocked. That felt about what I was expecting, given how sort of threadbare the squad is in places. Uh, but Graham, for you, having watched preseason, it seems like you maybe, maybe more than me even, were expecting a different Manchester United to start this season. Yeah, so first thing to say is I, I didn't expect, expect a complete performance. Mm-hmm. The, the, the four of us, including Joe, have, have spoken about how this will be a process for United with Ten Hag as manager. And I am, I predicted in our season preview that United would finish sixth of the big six. But but even still, I have to say this was, this was a lot worse than, than I was expecting. I watched, I think I watched three games of United's preseason. I watched the Liverpool game, I watched them play Crystal Palace, and I'm pretty sure I watched the majority of them playing Melbourne Victory. And and forget the results in those games because they're essentially essentially meaningless in preseason. But in terms of how United were playing, how they were set up, the relationships between players, particularly in the attack, there were there were some signs of growth, and there were some signs of what Ten Hag wanted to do from this team. The the as I say, the, the relationships was one of the one of the key parts. So I, I thought Fernandez and Sancho seemed to be very much on, on the same wavelength in preseason. They were looking for each other. There was a lot of quick passing was was a was a key part of what United were doing. Obviously everyone talked about the intensity and the pressing. And I thought for the first 20 minutes or so there there were some signs of that. But after that, and if we're to look at the 90 minutes of a whole mm-hmm. I didn't think there was much evidence in the performance of what United tried to do in preseason. And when I went back, I watched this game live and then I watched it again to try and analyze it. And it was almost kind of difficult to know where to start looking at the 90 minutes as a whole, because I thought David De Gea struggled badly in possession throughout. That in itself was enough to, to stop United from con- constructing a lot of moves from, from deep. Luke Shaw was positionally all over the place. My, my issue with Shaw has always been that he lacks intensity, both in his defensive work and his work on the ball. And now, that, now that's under the microscope in a, in a Ten Hag team, which is all about intensity. So I thought he was poor. I thought Dallow was caught out of position multiple times. And, and Harry Maguire has no idea whether to come across and cover for him or stay in position. And so that relationship was bad. Lissandro Martinez was okay. I've seen quite a lot of criticism Agreed. of him yeah um which is slightly 
peculiar given this is his debut and I, I didn't think he was the the worst player on the pitch at the very least you could see <laughs> in his performance the praise there, Graham, <laughs> yeah I know I know it's a low bar um, at, at the very least you could kind of see in his performance why he's been signed and there were times when he got United moving out from the back and there were times when he was there was a there was kind of a bit of a passing triangle that he was the base of and he did have some shaky moments and there were there were a couple times when the physicality was a problem I think he probably should have given away a, a penalty um, where he kind of barges I can't remember who the Brighton player is. Is it Danny Welbeck? Welbeck, Yeah. yeah. Um, When he barges him in the back, I thought that was that was probably a penalty kick. So even even in his performances, the performance there were some struggles. But as I say, slightly confused that he seems to have bore a lot of the brunt of criticism. Rashford man just offered next to nothing, and when he did get a couple of opportunities, put on put on a plate for him, he he lacked composure. I think Fernandez is becoming a real problem for Manchester United because in the last year or so he's come across as a player who is very difficult to coach. He doesn't seem to know what his tactical role is in this system, or at least on this performance. I thought in pre-season with Sancho there was there was something there, but he also lacked composure, gave up the ball a lot. I forgot Sancho was on the pitch for periods of the game, which is, is so disappointing for Ten Hag because he was such an, an important part of that attack in pre-season. And Ten Hag does seem to have a better understanding of what Sancho is and how you want him as a creator and not someone. Solskjaer seemed to think Sancho was a person you would try and get in behind and that's never really been his game. So maybe Sancho improves in, in, in the next few matches. But I, I go through that United team that that started against Brighton and, and two players get a pass. So Christian Eriksen, who I thought was largely played at a position as a centre forward. I didn't really understand that ploy from from Ten Hag, but that comes from the fact that he does he feels he doesn't have a centre forward at the moment with Martial out injured. When he dropped deep into midfield, I thought that was a, that was better from United. They got a, a hold of the ball. Just having someone that can can frankly control a football in the centre of the pitch made them a better team. So he gets a pass. I thought Martinez gets a pass. The two newbies. Everyone else was was pretty was pretty poor. And I know it's very early days, but you go through that United team and I think there are three players in that team that you would say, realistically, Ten Hag can shape. Two of them are Eriksen and Martinez. The other one is potentially Fred. The others, sorry, and, and Sancho, I should say, uh, yep. four players. Other than those four, it's it's kind of difficult to work out how this United team is going to work under Ten Hag. And, and I obvi- as I say, I expect it to be a long process for United, but uh, Sunday was it really hit home just kind of how big a rebuild they've got in their hands. I think a, a couple of things because I think Fred deserves a little more attention because I think he also gets a ton of the criticism and I tend to agree with a lot of it but at the same time think he is a player that gets played out of position and is asked to kind of do a lot to make up for the shortcomings of other players around him. So I hear you on that one, Graham. I think you're dead on with David De Gea's distribution being a problem. Uh, I, I would make the argument the first goal is him choosing to go long when he has options and maybe just doesn't quite trust himself because he has options, but there are Brighton players around. He goes long. There's a little bit of a scrum. McTominay picks up the ball. McTominay gets di- dispossessed and away go Brighton from there. I think Dalo, as you said, uh, like questionable in his effort, especially getting back, especially on that second goal. I think Fred loses his marker a couple of different times. But I think ultimately an interesting point that I, I, I kind of, maybe because I have to find myself agreeing with in the sense that it gives me a slight reason for optimism. Uh, Robbie Musto uh, at halftime of this game for NBC Sports was basically saying that he thinks a lot of the attacking issue of Bruno Fernandes and Marcus Rashford playing hero ball relate, relates to the idea that they don't get the ball very often. And there's a feeling that if we don't create something here, we might not get a touch for another 10, 15, 20 minutes. So we've got to try to make something happen. 
that's not an excuse. It's more so, I think, a, rep- a representation of the larger problem that you don't have players on the ball who can keep possession, who can find attackers in good spaces and make things happen. So I, I-, I think, to some extent, the recruitment continues to be the major issue for me, the lack of ball-playing players through the middle where you would like your central midfielders to be able to control and pass the ball. I think that is a big thing that's letting them down. Graham, do you have thoughts on the kind of disconnect between the defense and the attack? And if that can be bridged, are you any more optimistic about Manchester United? The the midfield is just such a problem for Manchester United. I I have concerns over... Maguire, but I I kind of anticipate that eventually Lindelof, or to be honest, I I think Lindelof, Varane, and Eric Bailly are probably all better fits for that United defence than than High Maguire. I think Maguire's playing because Ten Hag recognises there's a, there's a, a kind of a political issue there with him being the club captain, and maybe he doesn't want to upset too many things too quickly. I would suggest Sunday uh, proves that maybe maybe he should, and maybe he should focus more on just getting a defensive line that, that works with Lissandro Martinez as the, as the left-sided centre-back. But the midfield is a real problem. As as you said, Taylor, they, they, meant they started with Fred and McTominay, and all the problems we've seen with Fred and McTominay, that, that partnership, they, they were there against Brighton. McTominay in particular just does not move the ball quickly enough for a Ten Hag team. The, the number of times that he got pressed and coughed up the ball was 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 incredible, but not surprising because we've seen this sort of thing from Fred and McTominay before. They are not press-resistant teams. One of the things I would say about Brighton is, yes, traditionally Man United are a stronger team than Brighton, and on, on talent they are, but it was kind of one of the worst sides that United could have in their current state because obviously Brighton are a, a very proactive team on and off the ball. And they all know their roles and responsibilities. They're a very well coached team, and and that's everything that Manchester United are. And so it, it was a, it was a difficult test, and I I predicted this would be a draw, but I I thought we would see more of Ten Hag's ideas in the way that United play. The only the only positive from the midfield, from a United point of view, is that Ten Hag subbed out both Fred and McTominay in the second half. And as we keep we keep using that word process, and it's a learning process for Ten Hag. And if that's something that he takes away from this game that he can't play Fred and McTominay as, as a double pivot together in, in the centre of the pitch in a Premier League match, then I guess that is something. But the, the fact that Eriksen was dropped into that central midfield area and then as United are, press, are chasing mm-hmm. the game, I think Van der Beek comes on for... So Ronaldo comes on for Fred and then Van der Beek comes on for uh, McTominay and that leaves United with basically no defensive-minded midfielders in that team which obviously at that time of the game is what was required, but it just says a lot for how they just don't have their structure in place. And if if I'm Ten Hag, obviously we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. If I'm Ten Hag, I am storming into the recruitment department at United this morning and just having a tantrum because they are are letting him down and they're setting him up to fail. Graham, yeah. can, I, can I pick up on that? Sorry to interrupt, Taylor, but that, okay. I, that idea and the idea you're saying maybe there's only four players who can fit into this system, which I don't at all disagree with on the evidence of this weekend. But what I know about Ten Hag's system is, you know, it, there's intensity there, as you mentioned earlier. It's, it's about winning the ball in the final attacking third. It's about having a proper number nine like Haller, Ajax up top. It's about having centre-backs with push-ups, so on and so forth. So... Did, is it a case that Ten Hag maybe didn't do his homework? Like, did he, or did, was it an arrogance to think that he could shake some of these players into his system? Or is there maybe an element of there's still 
a toxic dressing room going on at Manchester United because I wonder how much that plays into it. Looking at, say, Harry Maguire at walking speed for large parts of this game, looking a bit disinterested and, mm-hmm. and, and the lack of shape. I wonder whether it's a lack of buy-in to the system so far, and not necessarily that those players can't do it, and whether there's an element of a bit of toxicity. And I'm just interested on your thoughts on whether Ten Hag has bitten off more than yeah. he can chew. I'm, I'm obviously speculating because I don't have any inside information, but I... I... I expect that Ten Hag thought there would be more activity in in the transfer market. I can't imagine he's pleased with the whole Frank de Jong situation. And really that needs to be resolved now because United can't just be in a situation where they're waiting around for Frank de Jong. He might be perfect for that role, but um, let's not have perfection be the enemy of progress for Manchester United. They they need to find alternatives and that because that's what a, a well-run club would do. They would they would go and find alternatives, even if they return for, for Frankie de Jong in the future. And I don't see much of Adrian Rabio, who seems to now have emerged as the alternative. I don't see him as as a as a, a, a de Jong uh, deputy or an alternative. I don't, I don't really see that comparison. And it just says to me that there's not really all, all we we heard before the start of the season. All we heard about with Manchester United was things have changed this time. You know they've got a new chief executive in Richard Arnold. They've got a new sporting director in John Murtaugh. They've got new recruitment staff. I read that they've hired something like fifty scouts and recruitment staff, and obviously they've got a new manager. And yet you look at the players that they're targeting, and and I think you can sometimes separate what is what is genuine and what is bluster. But even if you look at the players that they are genuinely targeting, I can't work out the strategy because it seems to be. Ten Hag's former players, which doesn't exactly say that he trusts the recruitment and scouting department at Manchester United, and then cheap options like Arnautovic, Eriksson, and uh, and Adrian Rabiot, who's got a year left on his on his contract at Juventus. So uh, it feels like Man United are just repeating the same mistakes with different people in 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 the in the jobs and the positions, and that is the depressing thing for Man United fans is that this is just, it feels like the cycle is repeating all, all over again. I've, I've got an old flatmate um, who's a Manchester United fan. Funnily enough, my other flatmate that I used to live with is an Everton fan. So that, that at the moment, that wouldn't be a very happy flat. But I was speaking to him after the game on Sunday and obviously I'm kind of ribbing him a little bit and, and, and joking at mine at his expense. But actually his, his comments just made me quite sad because he said at this point he's so tired and it's not just about losing. He can, he can handle a losing team. It's just about the, the repetition of the cycle over and over again for the last 10 years that he, he said if Mayanet had went bust and disappeared and I never had to th- think about Mayanet again, that he would be, he'd feel a sense of relief, that that would actually help him enjoy football more. Well, that's quite sad that Man United have taken their own fans to that point. And, that's, uh, has, Graham, that's putting down that's like, the family yeah. dog right there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, indeed. I think Man United has just become a, quite a sad situation. I, I, I grew up in the, you know, in the nineties and the early two thousands when Man United were dominant, and then there was a novelty factor to how Man United are kind of kind of bad now. I, I, I think the novelty factor has maybe not for Liverpool fans or City fans or so on, but just just for general football fans, the novelty factor's kind of worn off a little bit and it's similar to Arsenal a few years ago where I just got a bit sad and angry for for on their behalf I, th- I think it's it's a it's it's a real disgrace what the Glazers and and what's happened to my United to be honest Graham I, I I don't really love that like the way your your friend is talking is as though he has I guess literally been tortured and is now just like if you just wanted to end it that'd be fine uh that that's that's maybe slightly disconcerting when it comes to what this club has done to their fans uh to your point about they need to move on from Frankie de Jong I think if you look at their transfer activity and the players they're linked with now to me it's pretty indicative that they are not moving on from him at all that they will wait until the final day of this window because when you're going 
for sort of cut rate options in Arnautovic and Rabiot. Uh, if you're going for Ericsson on a free, to, to me, that says you are keeping your powder dry to spend it elsewhere. And my assumption is that most of that elsewhere is Frankie de Jong, and they're waiting to see how that plays out. And I think I, I that already is troubling. It, then suddenly you start remembering the quotes from Rangnick about how they, they need 10 players to be competitive. I think 10 plus four gives you... Uh, what, 11 players plus three subs, which is maybe speaks to Graham's idea that there are four players in there who are particularly coachable. And I think ultimately what I keep thinking of is we did the one-on-one on Jurgen Klopp last week, of what makes him such a good manager. And uh, a few different articles about when he took over Liverpool and, and, and you sort of, he brings in a different mentality. He brings in a personality shift and, and there's a lot of chemistry and camaraderie going on behind the scenes. But it's also that there's little aspects of his game being implemented. And you can see in the first game, there's evidence of hunting in packs. There's evidence of high pressing. There's evidence of that rapid transition to attack. And you can see individual players, if not the whole team, starting to get it. And the players that don't stop getting played and eventually get sold. And within a couple of seasons, he has moved on, I think, all but three players from that squad he inherited. But it's still... You can see the building blocks there. You can see the buy-in and you can see how he gets them moving in the right direction. And I think there's a world in which that could have happened in this game. Bruno Fernandes has that miss really early on where it's a cutback that's deflected. He puts it over the bar. And I really do think if that goes in, there's a multiverse in which he scores that. Now Brighton have to be open. They can't play the game they want to play. And maybe there's another goal or two and suddenly things seem rosier. I don't know if they actually are, but instead... I think you could just see the breakdown, especially in the second half of players clearly not doing what he would have asked of them or what we assume he would have asked of them because it's it's hoofing long every single time. In the second half, Luke Shaw goes direct down that left left line like four plays in a row, each of them getting cut out. It's long balls. It's uh, like a lack of intensity when they're trying to win the ball back. And I just think rather than this be a performance to build upon and little performances that stand out as we move towards a more cohesive team, it feels like the wheels came off and you could see the players that especially weren't coachable. But when most of the team is that, it's it's hard to see how they kind of pick it up from here. And so I guess that's why I'm not the, the well-paid manager who now has to figure that one out. Uh, a, a manager who maybe should be well more, uh, more well-paid, we should pause to just say one more time, Graham Potter and Brighton doing amazing things, losing key players, but just coming out and looking not particularly bothered. And I don't think that there's certainly the defensive side of things requires a ton of preparation and organization, but at times in the first half, it was bypass any sort of press Manchester United might, might be throwing at you, put that ball long. But when Manchester United started to back off and you would have 30, 40, sometimes 50 yards between the front line and the center backs, that is not how that system is supposed to look. And when you have, technical players who can challenge for those area balls as Brighton do it was route one at times but then it was very quick possession very quick passing and transition off of that long ball and I think they just exposed Manchester United so it was brilliant play from Brighton it was brilliant manage uh management from Graham Potter and it was everything else that was bad for Manchester United <laughs> yeah and, and I thought that the mark of just how good a coach Potter is and how how in control of this Brighton squad he is at this moment came in the performance of um, uh, Leandro Trossard mm-hmm. down, the, down the left side, who, keep in mind, Brighton sold Mark Cucurella a few days before this match, 
And so they kind of had to reshuffle things on that side of the pitch. But yet Leandro Trossard plays this sort of hybrid. He wasn't a wing back. He wasn't a winger. He certainly wasn't a defender. But he was he was playing on that left side where Cucurella would have been playing. And that, my United had so many problems down that side. Yep. And then Moises Caicedo was the other one who I thought was was brilliant. Danny Welbeck as well des- deserves a mention. But in the centre of the pitch, who is the replacement for Yves Bissouma this summer. Yves Bissouma obviously sold to Tottenham Hotspur. He was brilliant on both sides of the ball, breaking up attacking moves, covering a lot of ground, but also starting moves from deep as well. So that's just like the complete opposite of United where Brighton have this system, they lose two brilliant players, but then Potter is on his toes and he's thinking about replacements and he plugs two solutions in and they immediately work because he has such a grip of what makes this team tick. And the contrast between... maybe Ten Hag's a brilliant manager and we've seen that at Ajax, but the, the contrast between his team at this point and Brighton could not have been more stark. Yeah, definitely so. And Brighton's uh, best ever season last season, by the way. They finished ninth. They picked up where they uh, left off very much so. So um, well done to Brighton once again for that performance. But Taylor, picking up on what you said about um, lack of intensity outside of possession from Man United, I think that was one of the things that stood out to me the most. They were so poor outside of possession in this game. And even, it was like the, the, they proverbially didn't look up for it, I thought quite a lot of this game even yeah. after scoring it was still pretty ponderous and that really surprised me because You're i'm so conditioned fragile. that old trafford when man united score and they need another goal then it's go time and it wasn't go time that's what really surprised me <laughs> of this team i think and so, yeah. so taylor one more question for you and we'll park this game is there a narrative where this is the wake-up call all these players need and they come out swinging next is it i think it's brentford possibly next week is it is, is there a game where you know this was the game they needed to play to get these these ghosts out of the system. Is there a narrative yeah. where, or is that wishful thinking? Uh, at this point, I think it's probably wishful thinking, sadly. I, I, I think after the game, my feeling was, yeah, this is how it was going to be. Eric Ten Hag, my hope, is not brought in to write things in one season and then away we go, everything's wonderful. I mean, that would be great, but that never felt likely to me. It felt far more likely that this is a continuation. Ideally, it would have been a continuation of what Ralph Rangnick was doing. That doesn't seem to be the case, but my hope was that it would be he's he's figuring out who can fit into his system. Then he's bringing in players to kind of fill in the gaps. Maybe there's a few players who can't be moved on. David De Gea is not being sold this summer and they're bringing in a keeper who can play with his feet. But you sort of figure out how to play the way you want to as best you can with the people you have. You strengthen in January. You keep building that identity. You get everybody on board. And then maybe this time next season, there's a few more signings. Everybody's bought in. Everybody understands the system and things continue to improve. But... When you have the the rumors they have this morning, as Gra- as Graham already pointed out, it feels like it's the same. It feels like it's panic buys. You're getting who you can, who's available for cheap, because if you go for somebody that's maybe slightly more proven entity, somebody with Premier League experience, you're gonna end up. Arnautovic aside, I'm talking about Rabio there. You're getting you're gonna get like basically overcharged, and I think with a lot of players right now. I think there are players who, if they're less heralded, if they're less hyped, if you've got a Salzburg midfielder who's very good on the ball and you've got a Premier League club coming in for him, I think there's a chance he prefers Brighton over Manchester United because Brighton is a club where you can go, you can fit in, you know you're going to be coached well, you can fit into the system, you play really well. Look at Kukurea, who moved there last season, has one season as their player of the year, and now he's at Chelsea making a lot of money and playing in the Champions League. And Manchester United aren't going to give you that offer. And so I think until they can really prove themselves to be at least somewhat stable, we're going to see more of these issues. And hopefully that means 
Ten Hag starts going with younger players or academy players, or he gets some buy-in from a few veterans and makes some difficult decisions along the way. But for now, I am wary of what's to come. Well, Taylor, uh, on, my... on, on that note of attracting talent, do pour some out for Frankie de Jong, who um, has the choice of either coming to Man United or staying with the club that's currently suing itself. Um, so, uh... <laughs> and him, I read today. Apparently, yeah. they're going to take legal action against his contract, which is insane. Yeah, it's Wonderful. it's really strange to me the the players that are willing to go to Barcelona right now and and see that happening and must just think well like surely that won't happen to me and not seeing the long line of players who have said that exact same thing and then it happened to them immediately. Yeah, just just going back to my United's transfer activity, they, they can't <laughs> they can't go down the short term route again because that's been the last few years it was that was the case with Cavani, Egalo, Falcao, Ibrahimovic, Alexis Sanchez, Cristiano Ronaldo. It's been this In way their prime, since Ferguson. All of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you keep telling yourself that. And and some of them have been successful. Cavani had a had a had a good first season. Ibrahimovic I think the season he was there was had did did well for them. But each time it's it's kicking the can down the road. We'll we'll get the the next long-term superstar next summer as mm. as as the as the the approach. And the the, the long-term super, superstars just never arrive for Manchester United and I think the the three changes that Ten Hag made right at the end of this game were quite telling I would hazard a guess that maybe all three of those players might start against Brentford so they were well maybe not in the case of Garnacho, but I think Elanga and Malasia there's a good chance that they start against Brentford and maybe Garnacho gets a bit more game time and that's the route I would go down with Ten Hag because it and it, it, um, I'd favor the kids and go with some of the youngsters because one it's it's um sends a message to United's board and also just gives the illusion that he's uh, that he's building something even if it, if that's not the case if he's not building anything at all it might just buy him a little bit more time because he can point to the youngsters and say well you know you'll see the 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 product of this in a year's time at the moment with the senior players in that team he's he's got a real task on his hands oh boy don't win anything with kids Graham I think Man United learned that long ago so uh, we'll see how that one <laughs> works out all right we're going to park that game after the break we're going to talk about liverpool's trip to craven cottage we're going to round up the premier league we're going to go to the bundesliga and much more after this short break this episode is brought to you by Michelob ultra the official beer sponsor of the nba want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob ultra courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive nba prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an nba game and more head over to michelobultra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's turn our attentions to Fulham, to Liverpool, to a fantastic win for Manchester City was this game. A very good match <laughs> on Saturday morning for uh, for us soccer fans as well. Fulham leading twice in this one against all expectation, I would say. Um, I believe Fulham's last 
two opening Premier League games they've lost to nil at home. Liverpool had won their last six opening games. This was their fourth in a row against a newly promoted side, and they scored at least three goals in all of those six opening games they'd won. Didn't quite go to plan for them, though, but we had Darren Nunes, Nunes excuse me, scoring one and creating one from the bench as well. Uh, Graham, we when we did our Soccer 101 uh, last week about Jurgen Klopp and his genius, we mentioned some of the excuses he makes, uh, hmm. one of which was uh, he once said the pitch was too dry. And he said the same thing about Fulham, who on Sunday brilliantly tweeted uh, a photo of the Craven Cottage field being watered by all the sprinklers and saying, such a lush surface down here at Craven Cottage. I did enjoy that. (laughs) Yes, I I also enjoyed that. Props to the to the Fulham FC Twitter admin. I mean, even if even if the pitch was slightly dry, I, I don't really have any opinion on that. The ball seemed to be rolling fine on the TV. I guess maybe down on the pitch, the impression was slightly different. But even if that was the case, I would I would say that Liverpool contributed to their own problems more than a dry pitch did, particularly in the first half where their performance was not so good. Yeah. Should we talk about that? What happened there, Graham? Yeah, I'm not so sure. It just felt very it just felt very lethargic from Liverpool. It was a peculiar performance and um I thought they they were pretty slack with 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 the ball. There wasn't much energy. I didn't. I thought Firmino didn't do much to influence the game as as the number nine. It wasn't really until Darwin Nunes comes on in the second half and and his energy and, and directness I thought made a big difference. I read a good piece by John Muller on the Athletic about how Salah's role has changed for Liverpool recently and that Klopp is pushing him actually further away from goal out wide to create space for Alexander-Arnold on the inside. And, and I guess we saw that in the Community Shield where Alexander-Arnold has that that shot from the edge of the box. He's in a more central position than maybe we're accustomed to seeing him. But the knock-on effect of this is that Mohamed Salah is putting more crosses into the box, in particular to the to the near post. And Liverpool didn't really have anyone until this season to, to make the most of those crosses. And now they've got Darwin Nunes in the team and so he was he was um he was making those runs to the near post he scores one with that that nice little uh, that little, little flick that i think is going to become a bit of a trademark for him in the premier league i've seen that finish for from him for for uh, benfica a number of times and it kind of explains why nunes was was targeted in the first place because as i say he's always quick to make that run to the near post salah is very good at delivering those crosses there's a lot of data in that john miller piece about how those cross- crosses weren't being capitalized on last season and as i say it explains a lot about why they went for nunes so i think there's been this idea with nunes that Klopp needs to ease him into the Liverpool team but actually having watched Liverpool play against Fulham I I would say he kind of needs to be unleashed now and and also his community shield performance was very good as well I think he's he's a good natural fit for Liverpool he's he he bridges the gap between being a player who can fit into their team easily but also bringing a little bit of a different dimension so I, I would certainly be starting him in games from now on yeah they're very good at bringing players lately who bed in very quickly it seems Graham uh Taylor in my notes here I have written down Liverpool's midfield couldn't quite handle Fulham's press and I can't quite believe I had to write that sentence but I did yeah, I mean, I think I think until I would argue until Thiago comes off due to injury, it's more of a problem than I'm used to. But I think Harvey Elliott comes in and plays very smart for a, a youngster coming into that Liverpool team. Joe and I talk about this sometimes about how you want a player who sort of knows what is expected of them. And if it's not 
score all the goals, win all the games. If it's keep the ball moving, don't get caught in possession, don't make obvious mistakes. I think that's the game Elliot had. Uh, he has the ball out wide that then leads to the first goal, but it's it's very simple one and two touch passing that I think that was sort of needed on the day because I think Liver, or, uh, Fulham's press was coordinated, organized. It was up for it. There was no... There was no sort of, oh, this is Liverpool, we're in trouble opening day. It was, we're going to kind of come out and try to make this a statement game and show we're not the Fulham that was last in the Premier League that got got kind of ripped apart easily and were way too open. They were coordinated, they were disciplined, they were organized, uh, they were physical when they needed to be. They won a lot of battles that I didn't expect them to win. And I think it's a very strong sign for Fulham fans uh, that they were able to get this result. Maybe... Yeah maybe slightly down that they couldn't hang on uh, to the lead both times, but also always really nice to see Alexander Mitrovic back in the league, a player that I will forever think is about 34 years old, even if he is only 28, (laughs) I believe Uh, there's, there's a black and white photo of him playing for like a Fulham team in 1934. I have to believe somewhere he's just been there uh, forever and he will always be there and I'm okay with it. Wow, he's 27. I would have put him at uh, about 30. Yeah. I can't believe he's only 27. Is it 27? I can't remember if it's 27 or 28. Yeah, I just Googled it. Yeah, he's 27 years old. Yep. He'll be be 28 next month. But even still, that is incredible. He is immortal. He is inevitable. That's how it works. Quite the the revelation. I I thought this was a a, a brilliant performance by Mitrovic, actually. We we got the kind of classic Mitrovic moments when he overpowered Alexander Arnold at the back (laughs) to to thunder home that, that Teddy cross. And his physicality was a was a problem for Liverpool all game. I thought Vir- Virgil Van Dijk rarely has a, a a bad game in the Premier League for Liverpool. I thought this was one one of his worst. He he didn't look at all comfortable with Mitrovic, Mitrovic's movement. I'm not sure if the penalty was a penalty. The contact seemed minimal to be, but none, nonetheless, there were a few moments where Van Dijk was getting turned, and that was maybe the 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 thing that was most surprising about Mitrovic. And maybe I've just maybe I've just not watched them for a long time. Um, I know he scored a, a hat full of goals in in, in the in the Championship last season, but I can't say I watched a a, a huge number of Fulham matches last season. But the way he was conducting the counter was very impressive. So he's not just a a target man to hit with crosses and long balls and get the elbow elbows out. Although there was that element to his performance as well, but he was he was doing a very good job of, of carrying the ball. There was one attack in particular where he carries the ball 20, 30 yards, and it looks like he's been shepherded into a blind alley by the Liverpool defenders. And then all of a sudden he pulls out this Cruyff turn and he sends two Liverpool players the wrong way and then plays a, a pass out to the left. And that's maybe not something that I would associate with Alexander Mitrovic. But I think Marco Silva... I was reading a, a Fulham article on on a Fulham blog, a Fulham fan blog on on how Marco Silva has used Mitrovic, and it feels like, unlike previous seasons in the Premier League, Mitrovic has had a team built around him. In the past, it kind of felt like mm-hmm. Fulham maybe wanted to replace him, and the, and they were targeting other players. But this time, I think they fully embraced Mitrovic as their as their number nine this season, and and we kind of got a, a demonstration of everything that he gives them on, on Saturday. Ryan, I don't know if you're like me, but when Graham says something like, I can't say I watched a huge amount of Fulham last season, my <laughs> assumption is that what he's saying is he only watched like 40 of their 46 league games <laughs> yeah. because he watches all things. Graham has, uh, I, how many screens, screens do you have running presently, Graham? Or not presently, but this weekend. How many games do you think? Um, So I've got... I think five screens at my at my desk, yes. and I, th- I had all five on operation. It might have been four because there was no Spanish football this season, uh, this weekend, and no Great. Italian, no Serie A. There was Coppa Italia, but I didn't watch any of the Coppa Italia games. But yeah, this weekend when La Liga's up and running, all five will be whirring away. Graham, there's go. too many screens, bud. 
Goodness yeah, me. well, I, I've I've got solar panels on the roof. You know, I'm, I'm, that's that's where that energy goes. As long as you're not hurting the environment, that's fine. Then, um, Taylor, let's fast forward to May next year, and Liverpool likely in the top two, Fulham maybe in the bottom three. Is this uh, what? How do we review this game then? Because um, there's a narrative where Liverpool they hit the woodwork, woodwork several times in this game. Mm-hmm. And do we see this as an aberration or how, how is this game viewed, do you think, in a few months time? I mean, I, I've heard all the jokes about Liverpool drop points. So congratulations to Man City for winning the title. I don't think it's quite to that level. I think this is probably, as Graham has already sort of alluded to, a wake up call of you need Nunez in there immediately. You need things to you need to kind of have the battling mentality immediately. But I think it's also the case that they fight back and get uh, two equalizers uh, on the road uh, in desert horrible conditions where the grass is dry and the ball won't move uh i think i think it won't end up being that big of a deal i think liverpool we expected to be first or second i think i picked them to be first i still think they're a very strong team one one sort of downturn in performance does not a season make although i think a lot of people would disagree having watched man city uh but i think for fulham to get points on opening day against liverpool there's no chance that was a thing that they were expecting maybe it's a thing they were hoping for but that's contrasting that with Manchester United this is a result that has to give them a little bit of belief a little bit of momentum that they can fight they can battle they can spring some surprises they can play their game and get results and I I don't know if I would have Fulham in the bottom three right now I think there's some other teams that we've seen who maybe have bigger problems bigger issues to worry about I thought the the midfield the two midfielders they brought in this summer Fulham of of Pereira and in particular Yao Polina were very good. I went. I went and looked at some of the stats on who scored, and their algorithm didn't seem to rate them as as high, as highly as I did. They had fairly low ratings. But I thought Palinia, as I say, he he broke up a lot of Liverpool attacks. He just gave Fulham a lot of protection and coverage. And it's and it's strange to me that Fulham have been able to get him for so cheap. I think they cost he cost them about twenty million pounds. He's a full Portuguese international. He won the title with Sporting a couple of years ago. He's still in his twenties. So I think he in particular, gives them a lot of quality. And if Fulham are going to stay away from relegation this season, I would predict it's going to be largely due to some of Paulinho's performances. Uh, well done to Fulham getting a point on the opening day against Liverpool. By the way, the, the dry pitch shenanigans reminds me of a... I'm going to make a reference to Wimbledon FC here, which I, d- I very rarely do on this podcast. Ding, ding, ding. Like open up uh, a part of my life here. Um, I think it was the opening day on 1997 or maybe the season before, um, Wimbledon played Liverpool at Selhurst Park. And because Wimbledon famously played the ball long, like hoofing it to the big man was the style at the time. Liverpool very much pass and move, it's the Liverpool groove. And the groundspeople grew the grass about an extra couple inches. And even when you walked in the stadium that day, it was so obvious that the grass was incredibly long. And when the players were warming up at the start, like you could see like half the ball disappearing, basically. So the ball just didn't move at all when you <laughs> made the passes on the ground. And Wimbledon won that day. And it was fantastic. And it was the kind of thing you'd get away with in the first game because you can keep it long and cut it short because they shared with Crystal Palace at the time as well. So uh, wonderful stuff there. Uh, Liverpool dropping two points there. Uh, Man City going ahead in the title race already with a win at West Ham. Let's talk about that. The rest of the Premier League, uh, some Liga, some Bundesliga, some MLS, all coming after this short break. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. 
Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's go to East London, West Ham nil. Erling Haaland too, apparently, according to our running order. Uh, Erling Haaland uh, yeah, doing quite well in this game. Uh, City getting 77% possession in this game also. West Ham's tactics, Graham, of sitting back and trying to absorb the champions only worked for so long, it seemed. Uh, Erling Haaland getting a goal from open play, not before getting one from the spot. Yeah, remember remember that Erling Haaland transition period we spoke about last week? Well, it appears he's gone through that transition and it took him a grand total of one week because he was devastating in this match. I thought there was there was a strange... I saw those statistics about City having 77% of possession, but I also thought there was a flip side to that where West Ham were, when they had the ball, they were trying to counter them themselves. And so that kind of played into City's hands a little bit and that there was space in behind for, for Haaland to run into. And he made the most of that. And I still, let's not revise things too much. I still expect that Haaland will have some trouble against low defensive blocks when City have to play a more intricate possession game. Because if you look at his touches in this match, no, no, I was going to say no outfield player. It was actually just no City player that started this game had fewer touches of the ball than him because Ederson had more touches of the ball than him. So that kind of tells you what his performance was all about. It was all about getting into dangerous areas and making those moments count. And if I had to sum up what he gives City, it's that they no longer have to be so precise to score a goal. So last season, as we talked about a number of times, City didn't play with a number nine as such. And so everything felt very intricate and they're, they're very good at that stuff. But there were a few occasions when they didn't have another option, when that plan A didn't work. Now, with Haaland playing on the shoulder of the last defender, they can on occasion just flip a ball in behind for him and rely on his physical attributes. And that's what City did in this game. And that, that was perhaps the biggest difference for me in this performance compared to the Community Shield was that Kevin De Bruyne and Gundogan in particular, those two, seemed much more in tune with the runs that Haaland was making. And that's obviously where the two goals come from. Gundogan plays the pass for the the run that leads to the, the penalty in the first half. And then you have De Bruyne playing the pass for Haaland in, in the second half for the second goal. And as I say, there, there will still be some games where I, I expect Haaland will be a bit of a misfit. But this performance showed that in games like this, he's just going to score so many goals in the Premier League. I can't really recall a new signing coming coming into the Premier League and people instantly talking about whether he could be the, the record scorer in the league's history. Like people are genuinely talking about Alan Shearer's record being under threat. That might be going a little bit far, but 
I think in games like this, he's going to feast. And he and he was disappointed to come off and not get a hat-trick because obviously he scored, on, uh, scored a hat-trick in his first Champions League game. He scored a hat-trick in his first Bundesliga game for Dortmund and it very much felt like a hat-trick might have been there for him in this game. But Guardiola yeah. clearly feels he, he needs him for, 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 next, for further games. I think th- this game shows to me, Erling Haaland is an amazing player, obviously, but also how good of a manager Pep Guardiola is. Because so often when you have that like the world-class player that's added to a team that's already good, you get that feeling of like, oh, that's it. They're going to win everything. They're going to win every single competition. They're never going to lose a game. And sometimes that happens, but more often it's a weird tipping point moment. And that player just like, you have to change your identity too much to accommodate that player. And it ends up being more of a problem or it takes a while to get that player into the system. And by then you have injuries or other issues going on. and And it can be, a sort of wheels come off signing that was meant to be the thing that uh, adds even more horsepower. And yet Pep Guardiola has adjusted, gotten rid of some players that we thought might be a mistake, and maybe it will end up being a mistake. Time will tell. It's only one game. But that verticality that Graham has talked about is not a thing I remember from Man City, or at least not as like incisive of an attacking approach. And and there's the penalty that's a ball through that uh, Holland draws and takes and scores. And then the second goal is, is the same. And, and I think it adds just such a new element to city that it could have been disruptive, but instead it seems like it has helped them kick into another gear. I agree against low blocks. It's going to, there's going to be less space to run into. Obviously there's going to be less time on the ball. So maybe that's where his aerial ability comes in, or maybe it's, he's such a distracting presence. It opens up space for others around him. But I think a, a signing that many people, and maybe myself included, were, were sort of happy to make fun of in the community shield when he had some misses, because it felt like, Oh, this guy's coming in. It's going to be the end of the league. They're going to win everything. He's going to score 50 goals. Uh, maybe the community shield was not, quite the uh, indicator of how he's going to be this game maybe more so do, do we think pep guardiola is actually privately silently furious that his city team can now play this way like city are going to win games and Haaland <laughs> is going to score a hundred goals this season but but guardiola is going to be absolutely fuming because this is not how he envisaged football to be played uh, yeah almost certainly almost certainly yeah. and then he'll have to like up the difficulty level as you do in fifa yeah <laughs> he t- didn't get his attire his uh his attire choice right for this game either because this this was not a gray jumper day pep guardiola was, there was do, can we i i struggle to think of a manager this weekend who was pulling off some good looks like graham potter even looked like a guy who'd shown up for dinner not realizing that they had a jacket required policy and he was wearing someone else's jacket to dinner eric ten Hag had a strange sort of polo t-shirt blazer combo yeah that uh, was weird uh, with pep, trainers pep didn't trainers. look too good Klopp looked like his usual workout attire I don't know I, I think Premier League needs to step it up a little bit when it comes to manager attire yeah Ten Hag was dressed like he just founded Apple I quite enjoyed that yes. um and I, I also... no, he, was, he was dressed like someone who would play the generic Steve Jobs type character in a film about a tech company that yeah. isn't actually allowed to use the Apple, the Apple name, like a Netflix film. That's what Eric Ten Hag was dressed it's, like. Yeah. Ten Hag has that thing of like, if, if things are going well, you can get away with certain mannerisms and choices. Steve Jobs can get away with wearing a black turtleneck, I guess. But Ten Hag, when it's not going well, he does that thing where he he like cocks the finger over his mouth and sort of has this weird, almost like a little like finger mustache. And it doesn't really look <laughs> like he is figuring things out. It looks a little bit, I don't know, cartoonish and strange. And uh, maybe if they're winning, that doesn't stand out so much. But when they're playing poorly, it looks like I don't quite know what I'm doing here and I'm not sure how to fix this. 
Graham, quick thoughts on what Man City were wearing. It looked like QPR had adjusted the contrast on their TV a little bit to me. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's pretty much a copy of an away shirt that Celtic had about 10 years ago. They call it the Bumblebee shirt. And I don't know if I like it or not. I think I'm edging on the side of not liking it. It's not one of my favourites, I don't think. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. Let's go to Bournemouth 2, Aston Villa 0. Bournemouth off to winning ways. Uh, The team that I said would finish 20th, I think we all concurred in our pre-season previews. Jefferson Lerma and Kiefer Moore getting the goals there. Not the best outing uh, to start off the season from Steven Gerrard's Aston Villa, though. He was pretty disappointed in his post-match interview. Leeds 2, Wolves 1. Four debutants for Jesse Marsh in this team. Taylor, a winner from Brendan Aronson. A winning goal. That was what happened, right? That is definitely what happened, and I will uh, hear no arguments against it. It's an anti-American <laughs> conspiracy, even if it pretty clearly was an own goal. But he puts himself in the position to make that happen. If Ignori doesn't put that one in, then Brendan Aronson obviously would have. And I think, though he doesn't get statistical credit, uh, and I think Fotmob had him as one of their lowest-rated players for Leeds, I thought this was a strong performance for him to start his Premier League uh, career that uh, saw some stats about how he had more pressures than any other player in the league this weekend. But I also think he had the the speed carrying the ball forward. He was a creative player that clearly became a focal point of the defense for Wolves. They were trying to limit his involvement. They were trying to limit his on-the-ball involvement. A few different little fouls here and there to stop him from transitioning to attack. I thought a great game from Brendan Aronson. So good, in fact, that I kept forgetting that Tyler Adams, also on the field. Tyler Adams, yeah. and, uh, I everyone who listens to this show knows how much I love Tyler Adams, but this was definitely the Brendan Aronson show for me. Even if he didn't get the goal, I think it was a great performance from him and a strong performance from Leeds. Maybe too strong if you're Bruno Lage and you don't like what Jesse Marsh was doing or what his team was doing. <laughs> they were the... The uh, afters at full time, Laj was asked about it and implied that some things were said that that should have been corrected earlier in the game. Jesse Marsh said it was nothing and then stared at the reporter until the next question was asked. So yeah. uh, I, I enjoyed that one. I enjoyed that little bit of uh, feistiness between the two. I really want to know what Jesse Marsh said. In my mind, it's do you remember Micah Richards, Micah Richards doing the Clint Dempsey yeah. impression on CBS yes. last season? Yes. It was like, you don't you don't know where I'm from, dog. That's kind of how what I imagine <laughs> Jesse Marsh doing. I'm oh. gonna guess Lodge was complaining about the physicality of the game and Jesse Marsh maybe had some words for him about how he should toughen up. Is my guess that that's what that conflict was. But I also think there maybe for Bruno Lage was a feeling of I also might be in some trouble because it's not a very strong Wolves team in terms of the depth they have. They already have in- injury issues and those seem to be compounding. And I think Wolves are in some trouble if they can't find a, a few solutions, bring in some more players. It it just seemed like they were compared to the teams of uh, Nuno when they first came up and in, in the first couple of seasons in the Premier League. There just wasn't that harmony. There wasn't that buy-in and that bite to Wolves. Like, they had a couple moments. I think it's Pedro Neto, like, body some people off the ball early. But as it goes on, there's a, a hesitancy. There's a tentativeness to Wolves that just you don't expect. I'm trying to avoid making a Wolf pun here. But they're, they're just, I, I think I'm used to them being more aggressive, especially on the counter and against Leeds. They were outwolfed. They were outworked. And I think it's a credit to Jesse Marsh and Leeds that they got that result. Very good stuff for America's team. Yeah. Uh, Newcastle 2, Knott's Forest nil. Fabian Scher getting the goal of the weekend, Graham. Did you see that yeah. one? Long-range banger. Wasn't that good? 
I did, and I also enjoyed Match of the Day highlighting the fact that he only ever scores one type of goal because he basically <laughs> scored an, a, a carbon copy of that goal back in 2019. I think it was against Crystal Palace. And I'm not sure I've ever seen two goals that are so close to being exactly the same. So maybe uh, opposition teams should uh, close him down when he's winding that one up. Yeah, good idea. And Callum Wilson getting the other goal, uh, a player I said wouldn't score many goals this season. Awesome. Predictions going so well so far. <laughs> uh, Spurs 4, Southampton 1. Uh, Spurs coming from behind to get four goals. Not bad outing, Tay-Tay. No, I mean, I think this is... All, like we all had Spurs in our top four, I do believe, and this game has not done much to dissuade me from the notion that they'll be in the top four. It has, if anything, made me think that they will definitely be in that title conversation, or they will be pushing on because it's a it's a Spurs team that like the the maybe I'm being too charitable here, but it's a Spurs team that feels like walked like under Jose Mourinho so that they could run under Antonio Conte because there's that ruthlessness that Jose Mourinho wanted them to have. He talked about it a lot. You can watch the all or nothing where he's over and over talks about how soft they are and they don't have that winning mentality and they don't have that belief in the final moments. And Antonio Conte definitely seems to have inspired some of that ruthlessness, not just in, in the number of goals they scored, not just in the way they attacked and the swiftness thereof, but in the, the sort of demanding communication between the two son has that one in the first half where he dribbles and dribbles and dribbles and dribbles and dribbles has harry kane wide open at the far post could have played it to him and it would have been basically a tap in does it shoots it over and son gets yelled at by three different players before he even gets up and that's not like not a, a big thing in the grand scheme of things players get mad when they don't get their chances but even when it was four to one there was still just a demanding approach from the entire team there was a clearly a, an idea that you cannot let your performances dip or someone else will, will let you hear about it, that someone else likely being Antonio Conte, but also that there are other players who can come in. And when you've got Son, Kane, and Kulisevsky doing the things that they were doing, even if Son and Kane didn't score, it was still like strong attacking play across the board from them. And then there's, there's Richarlison just hanging out, waiting to come on. There is talent across the board for Tottenham. And I think there is belief as well, inspired by Antonio Conte. And as long as everybody continues to be able to handle that intensity, I think that we will see a very strong Tottenham team for the rest of the season. Very good stuff. Everton, uh, nil. Chelsea won. Jorginho's penalty making a difference in that one. Uh, not an amazing game by any stretch, Graham. No, and, and of all the, the matches in the Premier League on this opening weekend, this, this was the one I had the least expectation for because on both sides yep. with Everton and Chelsea, you have teams with a lot of questions against them right now. So from the Everton side of things, Dominic Calvert-Lewin is out injured for the next two months, which is not ideal when he was pretty much their only designated striker in the squad. They play Anthony Gordon up front, which I, I thought was... The, I, I like the idea of using him as the Richarlison replacement. It's probably as good as they can get at this moment. Lampard in defence, he seems to have settled on this back three as a permanent shape, and the, the fact they're going, they're going for Connor Cody seems to confirm this. I actually think that'll be a pretty good signing for, for Everton. That's that's a sensible addition, which is much needed at the moment. The midfield is, is a concern. I know I know Lampard is trying to keep the midfield compact and the, the four that he's using in that midfield, keep them nice and narrow and have the width from, from the wing backs. But 
I, I just feel like they need a natural midfield anchor in there because it's not something that comes naturally to Alex Awobi. And then for Chelsea, this is a team that's still figuring some things out, which isn't too surprising given how busy their summer's been. I thought Mountain Havertz were, were quiet. I thought Sterling was good. That's one of the, the plus points for them. I've no doubt that he will be an important player for them this season. Koulibaly, I thought he, this was a tough test for him because it was a high intensity, high energy Everton attack. They put him under a lot of pressure and I guess he just about passed. I thought his his, his distribution was was good and then Cucurella made a good impression off the bench. But as I say, it's, it's, it's a working progress for Chelsea right now and I suspect they will get better once the transfer window closes because it feels like there's still a lot of moving pieces. Maybe they need another attacker, yeah. another midfielder. Certainly feels like they need another central defender. So there's still a lot of business to be done there. Indeed. All right, let's go. Leicester 2, Brentford 2. Leicester giving up a two-goal lead in this one. Brendan Rodgers, no doubt, frustrated he wasn't able to improve his team over the summer. Uh, Last but not least, Crystal Palace uh, kicked off the Premier League season on Friday with their home game against Arsenal. Arsenal taking a 2-0 win there. Martinelli and uh, Gehi own goal from a lovely... Well, it looked like a lovely soccer shot, but it was well off target until it wasn't. Um, Arsenal looking good, Graham. Yeah, and I, I was really excited to see how Arsenal would do in this match because it was a potentially difficult opening weekend fixture. Remember that Arsenal lost this corresponding fixture 3-0 last season, so Crystal Palace are a good team as well. There's been a lot of discussion about the business that Arsenal have done over, over the summer, bringing in Jesus and uh, Vieira, Zinchenko, Saliba coming back to the club, and they had a really good pre-season. And let's not get too carried away with ourselves because it's the, it's the it's only the first game of the season. But I was impressed with what I saw. I thought Jesus in the first half just looked so sharp. He was he was dribbling through two or three players at a time. He faded a little bit in the second half, which is maybe to be expected given that it's the, it's the first game of the season. But nonetheless, I think he's going to be a, a really important player for Arsenal this season. He gives them something that they that they lacked previously, which is a bit weird because obviously the, the the narrative around Man City is last season they didn't have a number nine. And so Man, uh, Arsenal have signed a Man City player to be their new number nine. And everyone says that's now the missing piece for Arsenal. Bit strange, but I think Arteta is going to use Jesus in a very different way to, to how Car- uh, Guardiola used him. Saliba was excellent. I think it said a lot that Ben White was the one that was moved out to, uh, to right back and not Saliba so um, it feels like he is probably first choice in central defence right now and Zinchenko was also very good he had lots of touches of the ball contributed a, a good assist for the opener I am I'm slightly concerned she's going to take Kieran Tierney's place from a Scotland mm. point of view but from an Arsenal point of view it was it was all very positive they handled a bit of pressure from Crystal Palace in the second half as well and a good way to start the season for them and I think I agree with everything Graham has said and I would add a point about Gabriel Jesus that's a player for me that has never been like intimidating when your team is playing against him. I put him in the kind of Nani category of, you know, he's very good, but you're never like, Oh no, he's got the ball. What's going to happen next. It's sort of like, maybe he'll do something good, but maybe he'll also do nothing with it. Uh, But I think it, it speaks volumes of Mikel Arteta, obviously having connections to Man City, but then what he has done with the Arsenal team that he recognizes the particular skill set, the particular abilities that Gabriel Jesus has that he could bring in and bring to that role and make that role his own. And I watch him now Arsenal and he is a much scarier player in my mind than he was with Man City. 
Man City a, a better, stronger team with Gabriel Jesus around. But with at Arsenal, he seems to be a better, stronger player. And I think that's Mikel Arteta's coaching. That's the system and a level of consistency with that team. But it's also a player, I think, feeling more valued than he had previously. And maybe the same goes for Oleksandr uh, Zinchenko. So maybe clubs should just be looking for Man City cast-offs as a way to... Uh, to get players who are extremely coached, extremely drilled, are used to a lot of instruction, but want that little bit of freedom. They want to be the uh, the big fish in the small pond. Uh, and not that Arsenal is a small pond by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but not winning the title with the regularity of Man City, whereas you go to Arsenal, you start up top, you score goals, everybody thinks you're great. <laughs> they do indeed all right let's take a quick look at the Bundesliga which kicked off on Friday afternoon with Eintracht Frankfurt hosting Bayern Munich Graham how did it go for Eintracht Frankfurt <laughs> not well I personally enjoyed this season's Bundesliga title race which lasted a whole five minutes <laughs> before Bayern Munich scored the opener in this match and went on to score another four before halftime I'm not sure having this match first on the Friday night as the season opener was was the best for the Bundesliga's already fragile image as a competitive division. Um, this was dominant by Bayern Munich, as the scoreline, the 6-1 scoreline suggests. Looking at it from a tactical point of view, there was more evidence of the 4-2-2-2 shape from Nagelsmann, which becomes a 4-4-2 at times. That worked very well. I thought Musiala had an incredible match. The partnership between Nabri and, and Sadio Mane already looked solid. And, and this is a this is a good Frankfurt team Bayern Munich were playing. They're, they won the Europa League last season, but Bayern Munich are just, they're just a machine in the in the Bundesliga. The, the signs are very positive for them this season, although I think we should wait until the Champions League starts up before getting a true measure of just how good they are. That always feels like the gauge for, for Bayern Munich now is, is, is in the Champions League. But in terms of the Bundesliga, I, th I think there was some hope maybe that there would be a title race with people expecting Leipzig and, and Dortmund in particular to be stronger this season than last. But I still think Bayern Munich are just so far ahead of the yeah. rest. I had a couple different conversations uh, with a couple different people this weekend, including my father, father-in-law, who asked me uh, why Bruce and Dortmund were playing uh, Bayer Lederhosen. Uh, I guess he, Lutz van and Stiel <laughs> maybe was uh, not enunciating that word as clearly as he could have been. Uh, but a couple different people asking me if, like which league I enjoyed the most and my answer tended to be uh, the Bundesliga because 50 plus one and there's parody and, and the atmosphere is incredible. And inevitably the question then is, and, and are there a lot of good teams? Is there always a title race? Is it like, do you, do you have to wait till the last minute to find out who's going to win? And like, that's the one sort of stumbling block for the Bundesliga. It's like, no, like the title's probably going to want to be won in March because there's one team who won it 10 straight times and look even better than they did previously uh, with even more backing for their young and up, up and coming still manager who is already established. Yeah, I agree with Graham. Bayern Munich, congrats on winning the Bundesliga. Indeed. Well, the one team who might push them, Tay-Tay, Borussia Dortmund getting a 1-0 mm. win over Bayer Lederhosen. How did that one go? Uh, I mean, it went well in the sense that they got the win. Uh, it was uh, Kareem Adeyemi getting a goal, but not getting a goal because Marco Royce puts it across the line. But it was Adeyemi making great, great plays, great runs, looking like he was going to be a handful and then coming out with injury. Uh, I have not seen the reports as to the severity of that injury, but this sort of this felt like Dortmund in a nutshell in seasons past, and I hope that I'm wrong, but it's a Dortmund team that makes signings, have a lot of enthusiasm, have a lot of belief behind them, then pick up some injuries, have a downturn in form, and things don't quite go their way. So I'm hoping that they are able to keep this going and pick it up from here, because this is a Leverkusen team that is is going to be very good, is always going to be very good and consistent in the Bundesliga at least, and I think could have 
at least gotten an equalizer in this one, if not gotten the win. And I think we'll be a stronger team as the season goes on. So for Dortmund to start off with a win over a team that we would fully expect to be in the top three or maybe four, I think that is a, a, a statement of intent. Let's just hope that they can keep the rest of their players healthy, that Giorena can continue to get minutes, and we have maybe a closer title race than I am currently anticipating. This match wasn't as as exciting as, as I hoped right, it would be. Right. But any okay. any match where an, cool. an outfielder finishes in goal is, a, is an entertaining match in my book. I'm just disappointed that Tapsoba, Tapsoba, who was the outfield player who had to go in goal after Hadreki got sent off, just disappointed he didn't actually have to make a save in the in the final Graham, few minutes. What that what was it? Because uh, sorry for interrupting, but I'm really glad you said that. It because this was one that I had I had scheduled, I had cleared time to sit down and watch. I was so excited because it seemed like Dortmund were stronger, Leverkusen are always good, but have gotten stronger themselves. I expected fireworks, and maybe that's just it. It's it's two very good teams meeting in the early season that sometimes is a recipe for a boring nil-nil. But like, do you have any other thoughts on why this game wasn't quite as exciting as at least I thought it would be? On on the Dortmund side of things, I think it's just because they're a work they're they're a work in yeah. progress. That that front three of Adeyemi, uh, Daniel Malin, and Makuko has huge amounts of potential, but it still feels like even before Adeyemi goes off injured, which was another thing that disrupt mm. Dor- disrupted Dortmund, it just feels like maybe the the understanding and the relationships and the partnerships aren't quite there in, in that in that front three yet. So on the Dortmund side of things, that was maybe an explanation. And then Leverkusen, I just felt like they this was a, a classic start of the season performance from them where there just wasn't the sharpness on another day I think they take something from this match and maybe that is reflected by Hadreki in the final minutes handling the ball outside his box the the mental focus just wasn't quite there and the technical sharpness wasn't quite there so maybe in a few weeks if they played this game in a few weeks time it might have been a more entertaining match I think. RB Leipzig dropped points on the opening day as well. They got a 1-1 draw against Stuttgart after taking the lead. And it was Schalke's first game back in the top flight. How did they celebrate that? With a 3-1 loss at Cologne and a man sent off to Rupp-Roll. Uh Looking over to League 1, uh, Leo Messi scored two goals, including a lovely, lovely bicycle kick in PSG's 5-0 win over Clermont. Uh, a good start under Christophe Gauthier there. And Aaron Ramsey came off the bench to score on his debut for Nice in their 1-1 draw against Toulouse. Nice not to lose on the debut. That looked a lot better written down. Uh, we've <laughs> gone long, so let's uh, do a very truncated version of Joe Lowry's MLS Corner featuring me. Lots and lots of goals in MLS this weekend. Uh, only one goalless game, in fact, and 12 teams scored three or more. Uh, Cincinnati got a three-on win over Philadelphia, a shock for the leader in the East. There was a pretty good game in Nashville where Toronto got a 4-3 win with uh, Lorenzo Insigne opening his account yeah. in style. That was a nice one, wasn't it, Graham? It was indeed. And this weekend in MLS, there seemed to be a lot of big social media moments, things that bounce around Twitter. And that's largely how I now consume MLS because there are one million teams and it is impossible to watch every single game. But I, yes, I did catch that in senior goal. And I think the hope obviously is that there will be more like those for uh, TFC for the rest of the season. And I'm sure there will. And speaking of things that were highlighted on uh, MLS Twitter, Graham, uh, Real Salt Lake 1, LAFC 4, <laughs> Gareth Bale scoring a great solo effort in this uh-huh. one. Well, he, he ran past some people who were jogging, I should say. Um, Chiellini, Giorgio Chiellini, did some stuff, Graham. He, um, what a guy. He, um, you know how you don't use your hands unless you're the goalkeeper? You know how that's a thing <laughs> in the game? He, he didn't not do yes. that, did he? No. I think at this point we have to consider Giorgio Chiellini a football innovator. So between 
the the horse collaring at the Euros and now this volleyball defending where he kind of misjudges a bouncing ball and realizes he's not going to get his head to that. So I'm just going to volleyball this away and take the, I assume he was booked, um, but take the yellow card, take the free kick. Yeah, a football innovator. He is, he is a giant of poop house, right? a, a Mount Rushmore poop house, if you will. Taylor, there's a difference between win at all costs and just outright cheat all the time, isn't there? <laughs> a loaded question. I feel like a little bit of a loaded question. I appreciate that Chiellini has the veteran ability to do that and then still pull off the, like, oh, I didn't know I couldn't do that. Like, come on. I'm just like, we're all just friends here. Like, come on. We're, we, we can stop that one. Like, he, he, we're just playing around. Yeah, yeah. Like, he, he definitely, I've always heard that if you foul somebody badly, if you immediately acknowledge it and check on them, you are far less likely to get carded. Uh, than if you like foul them and then walk away because you're, you're showing like ah there was there was definitely like it definitely wasn't an accident at the very least there's no remorse and I think Chiellini like handling the ball but then acting like oh come on you know what I was doing there like it's just such <laughs> a like it's a bold attempt to not get in trouble for a very very obvious foul it does start to feel like he is trying to troll Ryan Bailey if he does that against Charlotte and gets away with it I'm a little bit concerned about what will happen. The, the thing that got me, Taylor, is a lot of responses on, on social to that handball were, oh, he just doesn't respect MLS, does he? No, he doesn't respect anyone! He doesn't respect anyone is the problem! Oh, goodness me. Okay. I just, think, I just think it's a brilliant move of like, I don't want to run for this. I'm going to be beaten. I don't want to get a yellow card for fouling somebody. I don't even want that level of effort. I'm just going to handball and get a yellow card, whatever. Like, I, I, it's a veteran move, even if it's the most cynical thing he could possibly do. Yep, I agree. He is the worst. That was the weekend <laughs> review. Uh, thank you very much, Taylor Rockrow, for your uh, comments and analysis today. Uh, yes, uh, thank you for hosting and thank you for uh, summarizing my points about Chiellini expertly and accurately. Concise. <laughs> yes, you're quite welcome. Graham Rudman, thank you as always, sir. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. And thank you, listener, for joining us on the first of many weekend reviews this season. We'll be back very soon on the feed, but for now, bye! Bye! <laughs>